we move on on our journey through the American century, today I'm going to talk about Vietnam. Vietnam was a national and international tragedy. It drew America into a war thousands of miles away, a guerrilla war against an enemy that it could hardly see. A war the most eminent foreign policy advisor in America, George Kennan, who we heard about earlier, the architect of containment, a war that George Kennan had warned America it could not win. It cost billions of dollars in money that could have been spent on human needs at home, on schools, on health care, on services for America's poorest and most needy, on the great society, which Vietnam bankrupted. It divided American society more sharply than any war, any event since the Civil War. And in many respects, we have yet to put the pieces of our shattered national polity back together. It separated fathers and sons, brothers and brothers, sometimes fathers and daughters, in a way that no other war, again, with the exception of the Civil War, did. It was a war to prop up an unpopular, corrupt, weak-willed government in South Vietnam that lacked the confidence of its own people, as well as the ability and desire to fight for its own freedom. A regime whose only saving characteristic was the fact that it was anti-communist. Vietnam was a war in which the United States mistakenly identified a national war of liberation, with a monolithic communism and with a Soviet and Chinese drive for world domination, when in fact that war of liberation in Vietnam was largely independent of these two powers and was in fact anti-colonialist in character, aimed against all outsiders, including the Soviets and the Chinese. Vietnam was a war that helped send the United States economy into a 10-year tailspin lasting most of the 1970s with high inflation, high unemployment, low growth, and stiff foreign competition. Vietnam was a war that made a few companies rich. Military-industrial complex companies like Dow Chemical, the maker of the horrible incendiary napalm, which stuck to victims' skin and burned them alive. And Vietnam was a war actually fought, not by the middle class or the upper class, but by the poor and the working class minorities, while middle class and upper class college students with deferments sat comfortably in college dorm rooms. Vietnam destroyed America's image in the world as a beacon of democracy, justice, it was predicated on assumptions like the domino theory that did not come to pass. When South Vietnam fell in 1975, other nations did not automatically follow it into Marxism. Vietnam was the wrong war, at the wrong time, in the wrong place, and the United States will never live it down. It will remain a stain on our national honor forever. Or, the war in Vietnam was a noble, selfless cause. It was a war to protect a defenseless South Vietnam, a developing democracy, not perfect by any means, but developing against an aggressive communist state, North Vietnam, that refused to let it live in peace. South Vietnam did not attack North Vietnam. North Vietnam attacked South Vietnam. South Vietnam did not covet North Vietnamese land. North Vietnam coveted South Vietnamese land. Vietnam was a war against a North Vietnamese regime that ignored the most basic principles of human decency, of basic democracy, a morally bankrupt, totalitarian state that represented the worst of Marxism, a regime that tolerated no dissent, that tortured and murdered its own citizens by the thousands, that held mock elections, a regime that broke virtually every rule of civilized warfare, 
in its conduct against American troops in the South. Broke every promise, made lying into an art form. For every American, my lie, uh, 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 my lay, excuse me, uh, massacre. Uh, uh, which was the 1968 uh, massacre by United States troops of a defenseless group of, 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 of villagers. For every one of those incidents, North Vietnam committed 100, almost on a daily basis, a pack of indiscriminate killers who, as supporters of the war in Vietnam, had correctly predicted, engaged in mass murder on a grand scale as, a, after they conquered South Vietnam in 1975. This supposedly liberating North Vietnam that so many American war protesters like Jane Fonda, who had actually visited North Vietnam and supported their cause, so many American war protesters had romanticized and lionized. The Vietnam War was a war against North Vietnamese leaders who should have been defendants in war crimes trials, not heroes on college campuses. The Vietnam War was a noble cause, fought remarkably well under extremely difficult circumstances by courageous American soldiers unused to the special difficulties of guerrilla warfare, where uh, uh, it was almost impossible to distinguish a friend from a foe when an innocent-looking villager at one moment could be shooting at your head the next. Soldiers whose bravery was undercut by a weak-willed, pampered American population, especially its radical young, people without responsibilities themselves, who could not have understood the nature of American responsibilities to keep democratic countries free from communism, who could not see that communism had to be contained on all fronts, even one as far away as Vietnam, who could not see that Vietnam was a symbol, perhaps the symbol of the Cold War, of resistance to aggressive communist nations that openly stated their aims to take over the world, and which, in the specific case of North Vietnam, were supplying that nation with the means to fight on for years and years. The North Vietnamese war effort would have collapsed in 24 hours without the huge shipments of arms that it received from the Soviet Union and China. Vietnam was a noble cause because it was the epitome of the containment doctrine that eventually won the war against, uh, uh, won the Cold War against the USSR, just as its author George Cannon had predicted. It epitomized the steady application of counterpressure wherever the Soviets exerted pressure until the Soviet system, beset by its internal contradictions, collapsed from within, which is, of course, what happened 15 years after America supposedly lost Vietnam. America may have lost the battle, Vietnam, but it won the war, the Cold War, and a strong stand in Vietnam, even in a losing cause, was necessary to this ultimate victory in the most important war America would ever fight against a Marxist ideology that spread terror and misery wherever it went and aimed to spread it everywhere. Only the U.S. could make that stand against Marxism. Only the U.S. had the means and the will. And the rest of the world should be grateful that we did, that we stayed the course and kept our commitments not just to South Vietnam, but symbolically to all democratic nations threatened by the Soviets, by Marxism. America in Vietnam showed the communists that it would pay any price to defeat them. Vietnam was a symbol of that commitment. And thanks to Vietnam, the Cold War ended the way it did on American terms. Today, the world, with all its troubles, and all its dangers is still a safer and more just place than it was when the USSR swaggered around the globe, threatening freedom wherever it went. Thanks to Vietnam, a noble cause in an even larger noble cause, the so there's the Cold War, those days are over. Well, you've just heard two wildly clashing historical views 
of the war in Vietnam, America's longest war, most traumatic war since the Civil War. And as you can see from these wildly differing characterizations of the war, still our most confusing, ambiguous, and contradictory war, one that even today, after the end of the Cold War, it was so much of a, of a major part of, continues to baffle us, divide us, and affect us emotionally. The Vietnam War, in fact, in many respects, is still going on in America. Uh, even as the government of Vietnam, uh, one of the last remaining Marxist states uh, in the world, at least nominally uh, uh, Marxist, tries to prop up its economy with, of all things, American tourism. Uh, as I discovered to my surprise when I visited Vietnam as part of a Lawrence trip two years ago, uh, that tourism uh, is a major part of the communist or Marxist economy uh, of, of, uh, of, of Vietnam. Uh, I also found uh, it is probably one of the most capitalist-oriented nations in the world. You can buy almost anything there. Vietnam today cuts deals with eager United States hotel chains. Perhaps one day we will really have a Hanoi Hilton the sarcastic name that American POWs, including John McCain, uh, gave that infamous Hanoi prison in which they were held during the war. Uh, I visited that, uh, that Hanoi Hilton, and there actually is a luxury hotel right across the street, but not a Hilton. I'm waiting for the Hanoi Hilton. Now, I say the Vietnam War is still going on in America because it set in motion many of the cultural trends uh, in the nation that I spoke about when I lectured about the culture of the 1960s. Vietnam helped create the counterculture with its resistance to authority, its moral relativism, its anti-materialism, its free personal lifestyle. A counterculture that by the 21st century and by 2008 had spread to so many average Americans. Americans who would not have been in the vanguard of the counterculture in the 1960s, but are its heirs today. And of course, as I mentioned, the more conservative cultural reaction to the 60s, the reaction of people like Kenneth Starr, who tried to impeach uh, Bill Clinton, or even someone like television's Bill O'Reilly today, is also related to the Vietnam War, since if it helped create the counterculture, if Vietnam helped create the counterculture, which it did, it also helped create the opposition to the counterculture. So, over three decades after it ended, at least for the U.S., the war on, in Vietnam lives on in our culture and in our politics as well. The Vietnam War shaped our generation of American political leaders, uh, including, uh, of course, men like Bill Clinton uh, and George Bush, who did not even serve in that war. And in a less personal and more general respect, it shapes and influences American foreign policy uh, today and influences domestic politics as well. Any large-scale, long-term domestic program involving vast commitments of national resources is often criticized or derided as a Vietnam. President Clinton's national health care plan, which failed so spectacularly during the 1990s, during his first term, was an example of this. An open-ended program seemingly with the potential to drain away national resources for a nebulously defined goal. So, the war in Vietnam, of course, continues to influence us and divide us, again, as hopefully my starkly contrasting characterizations and descriptions of the war uh, uh, in Vietnam that I began this lecture with uh, uh, will show you, uh, divide us in areas that are far away from the jungles and rice paddies of Vietnam itself. And as I hope my rather stark uh, uh, and, of course, somewhat exaggerated uh, historical uh, descriptions of the war, my two starkly differing uh, 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 characterizations made clear, the war continues to divide historians as well. Uh, 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 just, uh, just the other day I came across a book that, uh, uh, in fact, the title of the book uh, is uh, Triumph Forsaken. Uh, uh, by a historian named Mark Moyar, 
Uh, so you can tell just from uh, the title of the book, Triumph Forsaken, uh, where he's coming out on it. He views Vietnam as a war that could have been won and should have been won. So the war continues to divide historians long after uh, uh, it ended. And perhaps the best way to sort through these uh, starkly differing characterizations of the war is with the facts by telling the story of the war in Vietnam. So, how then did we get involved in Vietnam? How did Vietnam happen? Well, the story, not surprisingly for the United States, starts with the Cold War and America's determination, as per the Truman Doctrine, which we've already talked about, to contain communist aggression everywhere on the globe in what may or may not have been a distortion of the containment doctrine of George Kennan. At least, Kennan himself, in some of his public statements, claimed that it was a distortion, that he didn't mean land wars in Asia. It was this overwhelmingly anti-communist impulse in America that caused the United States to do a number of, of things that it normally would not have done without anti-communism. And one of them was to support the forces of French colonialism in the far-off Southeast Asian, Asian uh, nation of Vietnam in the years immediately following World War II. America supported the French colonizers in Vietnam, and ironically, these former French colonizers would be among America's greatest critics uh, 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 during uh, our time in Vietnam from 1954 to 1973. Uh, uh, largely, we supported the French, largely because of a man named Ho Chi Minh. Now, Ho Chi Minh, which is H-O-C-H-I-M-I-N-H, three separate words, Ho Chi Minh made the United States afraid, very afraid, not just because he was a communist, but because he was a different kind of communist from what American policymakers were used to. Ho Chi Minh, who had been educated, true to his mystifying nature, in both France and the Soviet Union, had fought the invading Japanese alongside the French during World War II. And once the invading Japanese had been defeated in 1945, Ho Chi Minh began to fight the French themselves for the independence of Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh then was not only a Marxist, which he was, but he was also a nationalist, a Vietnamese patriot, an anti-colonialist. He's viewed as the George Washington of Vietnam. And Ho Chi Minh vowed to fight anyone, be it the Japanese, the French, the Americans, or the Chinese and the Soviets, for that matter, who stood in the way of Vietnamese independence. Now, in this way, Ho Chi Minh did not fit the stereotype of the communist satellite, the communist puppet uh, uh, that the United States was used to dealing with. Ho Chi Minh was a communist, but he was a relatively independent communist. He received aid from the Soviets and from the Chinese, but they didn't tell him what to do. Ho Chi Minh was fighting a war of national liberation in Vietnam that was Marxist, but not Soviet Marxist, even though the Soviets were sponsoring him with money and material. Now, if this sounds complicated and a bit hard to untangle, and it is, you can imagine how difficult it was for United States policymakers in the early Cold War years to untangle all of this. Their worldview left them little room for these kinds of nuances. It was strictly bipolar. Either a nation was anti-communist and on America's side, or it was communist on the USSR side or the Chinese side. A mere surrogate, surrogate or satellite of the Soviet Union or the Chinese. And thus, it is not surprising, uh, given this either-or mentality, uh, 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 that the United States, even after fighting World War II, ostensibly for worldwide self-determination and independence for all subjugated nations and peoples, which included Vietnam, still, nonetheless, supported the colonizers, the French, when they attempted to reestablish their colonial rule in Vietnam after 1945. The uh, French ruled uh, uh, Vietnam from the early 1800s all the way up to 
the 1950s. And it's not surprising that the United States opposed the popular anti-colonialist Ho Chi Minh in his attempt to end all foreign influence in Vietnam. To the United States, Ho Chi Minh was a communist puppet, a puppet of the Soviets, and after 1949, a puppet of the communist Chinese as well, whatever his nationalist trappings. And in the name of worldwide containment of communism and of the Truman Doctrine, Ho Chi Minh, in the views of the United States, needed to be stopped. A victory for Ho Chi Minh, American leaders believed, would be a symbolic defeat for America in its worldwide battle against communism, a battle that the undeveloped countries of the third world, not to mention the more well-developed countries of Europe, were watching with great interest. America could not afford to lose this war, even if Vietnam was small, far away, and of little value in terms of geopolitical strategy. And thus, although it did not appear to be so on the surface, American leaders quickly designated Vietnam as a vital interest, essential to United States security, and it would be this view that would endure over the next quarter century and drive American foreign policy, imprison American foreign policy, some critics would say, during that period, to a point when, in the 1960s, an American leader, who probably had never even heard of Vietnam in 1945, Lyndon Johnson, would consider it so important that he would send a half million American <laughs> troops there and drop more bombs on it than America dropped on Japan during the entire length of World War II. But this commitment of substantial numbers of ground troops in Vietnam was years in the future when the United States set out to defeat Ho Chi Minh in the late 1940s and early 1950s. At this time, American weapons were money uh, uh, and economics. Uh, trade, loans, outright money grants, uh, military supplies... America first sought to help the French during their attempt to keep Vietnam a part of their rapidly disintegrating uh, colonial empire. But Ho Chi Minh's troops defeated the French at Dien Bien Phu in 1954. That's D-I-E-N-B-I-E-N-P-H-U, one word. Uh, and the French then left the country. At the Geneva Peace Conference that year of 1954, Vietnam was divided into a northern half, uh, uh, controlled by Ho Chi Minh's Marxist nationalists, and a southern half, ostensibly a democratic nation, led by a man named Ngo Dinh Diem. That's spelled N-G-O-D-I-N-H-D-I-E-M. Three words. Now, you got that? Do it again? Okay. N-G-O-D-I-N-H. Uh, D-I-E-M. Three words. Now, Diem, uh, 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 a, who was the president of South Vietnam from the 1950s until 1963, uh, was a devout Catholic in an overwhelmingly uh, Buddhist nation. Uh, uh, certainly a disadvantage. He was an introspective, shy, rather strange man. He always dressed in white. He looked like he looked like the like the man on the top of a wedding cake or something. Uh, you know, he, he always dressed in white, uh, and he was certainly no match in popularity uh, for the charismatic Ho Chi Minh. Diem had spent a large amount of time in the 1940s out of Vietnam entirely. He was studying in a seminary uh, in the United States, so he was really not on Ho Chi Minh's level in terms of charisma and popularity. And the United States knew this because it refused to let elections that would have uh, uh, unified the nation be held as they were scheduled to be in 1956, correctly assuming that Ho Chi Minh would win the elections. From that time on, Ho Chi Minh and the North Vietnamese publicly stated their intention to conquer the South and unify Vietnam under a communist regime. And by 1960... Ho Chi Minh had established a guerrilla terrorist organization in South Vietnam called the National Liberation Front, or NLF, popularly known as the Viet Cong, to accomplish that unification. The Viet Cong engaged in hit-and-run attacks on South Vietnamese military personnel. 
set up enclaves in the South Vietnamese countryside, used a combination of intimidation and largesse to gain control of peasant villages, and conducted a campaign of terrorism in the cities. In this effort, they were aided by the existence of the so-called Ho Chi Minh Trail, a series of paths just west of the Vietnamese border in neighboring Laos and Cambodia, down which they were able to move men and supplies away from the South Vietnamese uh, and later, to their immense frustration, away from the Americans. The Viet Cong and their supporters, North Vietnam, were also aided during the 1950s and early 60s by the corruption and general ineffectuality of the DM regime in South Vietnam, handing out plum jobs to relatives and cronies, refusing to institute land reform, unable to preside over a healthy, independent economy, a religious outsider in his own country, DM was widely unpopular with his own people. And as a U.S. puppet uh, uh, gave the North Vietnamese plenty of propaganda opportunities. Now, Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy tried to prop up Diem as best they could with uh, economic and military aid, as well as a growing group of so-called advisors to the famously inept South Vietnamese army. These American advisors by the early 1960s had become a small number of combat troops fighting alongside the South Vietnamese army. By 1963, however, Kennedy had had enough with the North Vietnamese who were now launching direct military attacks on South Vietnam, uh, as well as the Viet Cong who were boring from within, making significant gains and threatening to overrun South Vietnam. Kennedy, just weeks before his own assassination, authorized a coup by South Vietnamese military leaders against Diem in November 1963. True to form, the rebels, these generals, who were supposed to simply overthrow Diem and then send him into exile outside of the country, instead murdered him in the back of a truck. It seemed nothing could go right in this country. But there was worse, much worse, to come for the United States. By the next year, 1964, the new American president, Lyndon Johnson, was faced with an unstable South Vietnamese governmental structure, a succession of military governments that succeeded Diem that fell like dominoes every few months, and an ever-increasing North Vietnamese and Viet Cong military threat against South Vietnam. Johnson new in office, uninformed in foreign affairs, and terrified of being lambasted by the Republican right and its presidential candidate that year, Barry Goldwater, who we talked about earlier, as being soft on communism, the worst thing you could say about a liberal Democrat in those days, especially one like Johnson, who was planning major civil rights initiatives and the war on poverty, as, you know, as Johnson was, Johnson, under these circumstances, decided that the United States had to enter the war directly on the South Vietnamese side and basically fight the war for them. Engineering an incident with the North Vietnamese Navy in the Gulf of Tonkin off the uh, Vietnamese coast in August 1964, Johnson secured the so-called Gulf of Tonkin Resolution from Congress. That's T-O-N-K-I-N. Uh, 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 authorizing Johnson to take all measures to prevent armed attack on South Vietnam or United States personnel there. Now this, as Johnson well knew, was not an official declaration of war. And he wanted it that way. Because Johnson wanted to fight this war in Vietnam almost by stealth, almost indirectly, without telling the American people exactly what he was doing. He wanted this because he knew Vietnam would be a hard war to sell to the American people in the same way that the Cold War itself, as I described in my earlier lecture on it, was a hard war to sell. Like the Cold War, the Vietnam War could go on for a long time. It didn't seem to have importance in and of itself, so far away. Its importance was symbolic. 
It couldn't be fought to win in the sense that the conquering of North Vietnam proper, you know, the taking of Hanoi, the way U.S. soldiers took Berlin, let's say, at the end of World War II, that wasn't the goal. Any attempt to do that, Johnson feared, would bring neighboring China into the war. China is on North Vietnam's northern border. You know, the same way that General Douglas MacArthur's attempt to overrun North Korea during the Korean War in the 1950s had brought the Chinese into the war. So Vietnam would have to be a limited war, one which the American people were not used to fighting and really couldn't understand, one in which victory would mean merely containing, restraining the North Vietnamese. Certainly not the most inspiring reason to commit significant numbers of American troops and sustain significant losses. It's like playing for a tie. Moreover, Johnson worried, how would this war impact the real war he wanted to fight? The war on poverty. Would he get the money for it from Congress if he also had to ask for the money for a declared war in Vietnam? For all these reasons, Johnson proceeded circumspectly, not really telling either the American people or Congress what he was doing, and using the Gulf of Tonkin resolution as a substitute for a real declaration of war, something that would come back to haunt him with both Congress and the American people. Now, by July 1965, events in South Vietnam had reached a crisis point. While the political situation uh, had uh, stabilized somewhat, with the uh, ascension to power uh, 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 of Gen Gen General Nguyen Van Thu, uh, who would run South Vietnam as president uh, until the end of the uh, war in 1975, and that spelled, again, three words, N-G-U, uh, uh, V-Y-E-N, that's one word, V-A-N, and then the last word is T-H-I-E-U. Uh, okay? So basically you could know him as T-H-I-E-U, Thu. Now, the military dis the situation in Vietnam, despite the fact that finally, uh, through uh, Nguyen Van Chu, uh, 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 the, 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 the politics has stabilized. I mean, he's, he was going to be present for the next 10 years. The military situation in South Vietnam was deteriorating with the North Vietnamese uh, and the Viet Cong threatening to overrun the country. It was at this time that Lyndon Johnson made the most fateful decision of his presidency and the one that would define him in history. He would escalate the war, committing large numbers of American combat troops, 50,000 in July 1965 when he made the decision, 200,000 by the end of 1965, and 535,000 by 1968. And he would also bomb North Vietnam systematically and substantially, trying to destroy their will to continue the war, to bomb them to the bargaining table, so to speak. Now Johnson, as we can see from our readings for today, made his decision not in hope, but almost in despair. Thanks to decisions that Kennedy had made, Eisenhower had made, Truman had made, the people before him, he had only a few choices, and none of them were good. If Johnson did nothing, South Vietnam would fall. And, like Truman, reviled by the anti-communist Republican right as the man who had lost China to the communists in 1949. And, perhaps, even like Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain of Great Britain, who gave Hitler what he wanted, uh, a part of Czechoslovakia, uh, 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 at the Munich Conference in 1938, uh, uh, and who was later, after World War II started, reviled by the world, uh, uh, the rest of the world as an appeaser. Like Truman, and maybe even like Neville Chamberlain of Great Britain, he, Lyndon Johnson, would now be known as the man who lost Vietnam to the communists and to American allies all over the world as a man who reneged on his promise to protect an ally, even one as exasperating as South Vietnam, from communist aggression. What would the rest of the country, the rest of the world think? Now, this Johnson could not accept. 
He felt he had to commit troops to Vietnam, even though he knew this would probably wreck his beloved war on poverty, what he really cared about, because of its drain on American uh, resources, since the cost of the war would soon balloon to about $2 billion a month. Now, Lyndon Johnson once said that the war in Vietnam was like a cruel mistress pulling him from the wife he truly loved, the war on poverty. Actually, his language was much more vulgar than this, but I'm cleaning it up a little for you. So what Johnson really wanted was to fight the war on poverty, not the war in Vietnam. But he felt he had no choice in Vietnam. And Johnson also knew in July 1965, as he made this fateful decision to escalate the war, the level of troops that he was committing uh, and the limited war that he was fighting. Uh, he feared escalating it too much and bringing in China, as I mentioned, uh, that this would probably not be enough to save South Vietnam in the, in the long run anyway. So his entire sacrifice of money, of lives, of emphasis on the war on poverty might still not achieve his objective. And finally, Johnson knew that an escalated war would bring down the wrath of liberals and the new left, and especially the young. Johnson could see the cultural wind shifting in the, in the United States and shifting towards protest and towards the counterculture, even as early as 1965. And what may have been the most galling to Johnson uh, uh, in 1965 is that he knew that some of these liberal critics of the war would be people who had themselves served in the Kennedy administration and had helped plan the war he was now stuck with. Johnson didn't plan this war as vice president. He was frozen out, pretty much, of decision-making. Most notably, Robert Kennedy who Johnson hated and despised, and who, the historical record shows, had been one of the biggest hawks on Vietnam when he was advising his brother, John Kennedy, despite Robert Kennedy's public anguish over the war by the late 1960s. So there's a real irony to this. Johnson didn't plan the war. Robert Kennedy did. But Johnson is now stuck with the war that Robert Kennedy is criticizing. Now, despite all this, Despite the sense of doom hanging over his decision, Johnson felt he had no choice and committed the United States in July 1965 to a war that would wreck his presidency, wreck the war on poverty, and almost wreck American society. A war basically to save face. Now, the United States' involvement in Vietnam featured all sorts of technological and strategic innovations, none of which worked search-and-destroy missions, where the United States troops would just level villages uh, 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 suspected of harboring Viet Cong. Uh, uh, one of those uh, search-and-destroy missions gave, gave, gave rise to the famous uh, ironic line, we had to destroy the village in order to save it. Also, search-and-destroy missions to find the Viet Cong and to sort of root them out the way you would root out almost a virus, only to just see them melt away into the dense Vietnamese countryside. There were also strategic hamlet programs, which took the populations of a number of South Vietnamese villages and combined them uh, under United States protection, but which had the effect of uprooting a large segment of South, Vietnamese, South Vietnam's very traditional peasantry, some of whom had lived on the same land and farmed the same land for generations, and thus destroyed their social cohesion and morale, and not to mention their loyalty to the South Vietnamese re regime. There were kill ratios and body count strategies, wherein the mathematically oriented Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, uh, calculated the precise number of dead North Vietnamese and Viet Cong that would destroy their will to fight. Numerical goals, which were usually reached, 10 Viet Cong to one U.S. soldier. And yet, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese despite the greatest bombing barrage in human history, fought on, buoyed by a vision of a united Vietnam free from foreign domination, a determination that allowed them to sustain horrific casualties and still not quit, a determined spirit which did not 
fit into Robert McNamara's number crunching calculations. McNamara's numbers said America was winning the war, and yet the war did not end. And by the beginning of 1968, as anti war protests convulsed the nation, as draft cards burned, as protesters chanted outside the White House, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? As the number killed in the war snaked upward past 33,000, the number America had lost in Korea, eventually to reach 58,000 in Vietnam. As all this happened, the media, especially television journalists, who had brought the horror of the war in Vietnam into the average American's living room every night, giving it an immediacy that no previous American war had, the media began to turn against the war, saying it was unwinnable. Walter Cronkite, the respected CBS news anchor, whose nickname was Uncle Walter for his trustworthiness, was one of the most notable and influential in this regard. He took a trip to Vietnam in 1968, came back and said on the air, what the hell are we doing there? And the final straw in Vietnam for many Americans was the Tet Offensive of January and February 1968, a bloody coordinated attack by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong on South Vietnamese provincial capitals, the equivalent of state capitals. It would be, it would be like a tax on all the state capitals. Uh, the Tet Offensive uh, was beaten back by American troops fighting even on the grounds of the U.S. Embassy itself in Saigon. But despite this, in February of 1968, in the wake of the Tet Offensive, which did fail militarily nonetheless, for the first time, according to polls, Americans now opposed the war in greater numbers than those who supported it. Uh, uh, and now, it wasn't just hippies or new leftists or college students who were opposing the war. Many middle Americans were opposing the war as well. And in the wake of these new polling numbers, majority or more Americans now opposed the war by February 1968 than support it. An exhausted and dispirited Lyndon Johnson, you can you can only imagine what he's going through, and I've seen the photographs of Johnson, uh, 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 you know, just exhausted, basically. Uh, 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 he, Lyndon Johnson felt that he had no choice but to begin back-channel negotiations with the North Vietnamese uh, uh, to start peace negotiations. By March 1968, with the hated Robert Kennedy, as well as Eugene McCarthy, uh, opposing him uh, in the presidential election. Uh, McCarthy, by March 68, had made a strong showing against Johnson in the New Hampshire primary. Lyndon Johnson knew his time was up. He announced in late March a bombing reduction, the beginnings of peace negotiations, and his withdrawal from the presidential race. In November 1968, in part because of his claim that he had a plan to end the war in Vietnam, Republican Richard Nixon was elected president. Now, Nixon's plan to end the war in Vietnam, as it turned out, was both the same and different from Lyndon Johnson's. It was the same in that it defined uh, American credibility, American face, against communism as the war's primary aim. Loss of face was considered to be unthinkable by both Johnson and Nixon. America, as Nixon put it when he announced uh, the 1970s invasion, 1970 invasion of neighboring Cambodia to clean out Viet Cong and North Vietnamese sanctuaries there, that's where the Ho Chi Minh Trail is, uh, uh, Nixon said that America could never be viewed as, quote, a pitiful, helpless giant. America, according to Nixon, would continue to project a strong public front against communism, uh, both in Vietnam and all over the world. But Nixon's plan was also different in that Nixon, a pragmatic geopolitician, if there ever was one, resolved to use the split between the Soviet Union and China, uh, both of which had some influence on North Vietnam, to coax some sort of face-saving peace deal out of the Hanoi government. While 
at the same time slowly withdrawing U.S. forces from the field in Vietnam and replacing them with South Vietnamese troops, Nixon's so-called Vietnamization plan, which he executed between 1969 and 1972. Now, there was one more element to Nixon's plan to achieve, as he put it, peace with honor, and that was a form of what might be described as presidential terror. Nixon basically tried to make the North Vietnamese believe that he was a madman, that he was unstable, that he was liable to do anything. Now, the North Vietnamese, not surprisingly, had been tough and unyielding negotiators at the Paris peace talks that had been going on since 1968 when Lyndon Johnson set them up. One of the North Vietnamese representatives had allegedly once said to American negotiator Cyrus Vance during one of their many impasses, one of which uh, took place over the shape of the negotiating table, supposedly said to Vance, the North Vietnamese, how many years do you wish to fight, Mr. Vance? Ten years? A hundred years? Two hundred years? We have been fighting for 500 years. We will fight as long as we have to. How long do you wish to fight? Now, it was this attitude that Richard Nixon, Nixon resolved to break in late 1972 with a massive, brutal, saturation bombing campaign that attacked areas in North Vietnam that even Johnson had feared to touch, civilian and military targets in Hanoi, as well as Haiphong Harbor, that's H-A-I-P-H-O-N-G, Haiphong Harbor, which was Hanoi's port area, and really its lifeline to the outside world. This bombing, known as the Christmas bombing, in late 1972, went on 24 hours a day, the biggest single round of bombing in world history. Nixon also put mines, or mined Haiphong Harbor, making it almost unusable. Another move that Lyndon Johnson had dared not make for fear of arousing China. But by 1972, Nixon had already made overtures to China. Uh, another thing that Nixon, a liberal, a uh, liberal Democrat, could not do. And Nixon had effectively neutralized China in the war in Vietnam. Now, the North Vietnamese had their breaking point, too, and uh, their fear carefully cultivated by Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, that Nixon was an out-of-control madman who might try anything, even nuclear weapons, this finally led the North Vietnamese to conclude a peace treaty with the United States in January 1973, just a few days, in a great irony, after Lyndon Johnson died. Now, Nixon may have forced the North Vietnamese to make a deal, the deal itself was very advantageous to the North Vietnamese. The war ended with the North Vietnamese and or the Viet Cong in control of about 30% of the land area of South Vietnam, which they basically got to keep. United States troops withdrew, as Nixon claimed, with honor, but also with the knowledge that while the American role in the Vietnam War was over, the war itself was not over. As expected, the North Vietnamese continued to fight on to conquer South Vietnam. And, as expected, when the final North Vietnamese assault came in the early part of 1975, the South Vietnamese collapsed abjectly, losing Saigon and the war in a matter of months. Calls for the United States to intervene militarily at the last minute, also as expected, were rejected by the new president, Gerald Ford. America, he said, had expended enough blood and treasure in that part of the world. And the world saw, via television, the scene as the North Vietnamese closed in on Saigon in the spring of 1975 as thousands of South Vietnamese scrambled to get out on U.S. helicopters before the North Vietnamese liberators took the city and took their bloody revenge on those unfortunate enough to remain. In a war full of stark television images, perhaps the starkest was this one, a mass of humanity clinging to the doors and windows of the last U.S. helicopter out of Saigon, 
the final casualties of America's longest war. Now, in the short term, both supporters and opponents of U.S.-Vietnam policies could say, I told you so. Other nations did not go communist, as the so-called domino theory said that they would in the wake of the North Vietnamese victory. And the North Vietnamese immediately commenced a bloodbath that had to give pause to those anti-war protesters who had lionized Ho Chi Minh's regime as an exemplar of human liberation. Uh, Ho Chi Minh died in 1969 before the uh, war ended, but his successors were the ones who took this bloody revenge. In addition, the North Vietnamese, so successful militarily, were an abject failure economically presiding for many years over a dreary, economically moribund Marxist state that despite massive subsidies from China and the Soviet Union, could not feed its own people, giving those people the worst of both worlds, political repression and economic stagnation. Now in the long run, of course, as I said at the uh, beginning of, of my lecture, historians continue to argue vehemently about Vietnam's legacy, especially now in the context of an Iraqi war with which it bears some passing resemblance. A legacy, of course, that is colored by the end of the Cold War itself. Does the end of the Cold War mean, as some historians argue, that we actually won Vietnam, that it was worth it? Or does it mean, as others maintain, that our victory in the Cold War had little or nothing to do with Vietnam, that we had paid a tremendously high price in Vietnam for a result that we would have achieved anyway? Well, we probably will not be able to answer these questions definitively until well into this century, if at all. But until that time, Vietnam provides lessons of all kinds, sometimes contradictory ones, to anyone who looks for them, whatever his political persuasion. And, of course, many are looking for them today as we debate the war in Iraq. And this alone will ensure that, however we view it, as a national tragedy, as a noble cause, or both, that the war in Vietnam will be with us for a very long time.